A quick note, this is a 10-part chronological docuseries. We recommend starting at Chapter 1. And for the best immersive listening experience, headphones are suggested. During the Vietnam War, hundreds of American aviators were shot down, imprisoned, and tortured for as many as eight long years. Exactly 50 years ago, the Nixon administration saved 591 of those prisoners of war from captivity. Many of them are still with us and willing to tell their stories like never before, alongside newly surfaced recordings from the Johnson and Nixon presidencies. Later in this episode, you will hear a piece of audio never heard before by the general public. It's the actual audio of a naval aviator being shot down, recorded more than 55 years ago. This is the premier podcast from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in partnership with Foundwave Productions and created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. Additional support comes from In-N-Out Burger, proud to support veterans and their families. This is Captured, shot down in Vietnam. Here is the first letter we received from my dad. It was written on the 15th of December, 1969. Dearest Dorothy, Michael, David, Leslie, my health is good in all respects, no permanent injuries. You are my inspiration. Children, work, study, play hard. Help each other and mommy be strong for our reunion. Invest savings in mutual funds and stock. Your decisions are mine, Dorothy. I love you deeply, Eugene. Dated 15 December, 1969. I was eight when he was sent off to war and nine when he was shot down. He was, you know, a hotshot Navy pilot. There was a water spout that had formed off Virginia Beach that was a real big one and it was all big news and everything. And he was assigned in the aircraft to go check it out. And so he, here he flies and checks out the water spout. And then he flew right over the house on his way back. And that was the coolest thing. The neighborhood thought that was so cool. You know, that was back when you could get away with doing that kind of stuff. Third grade, I don't think we really, you know, fathomed what it was. It was like he was going off to do his job. At nine years old, you don't think, weren't petrified or terrified about it all. It was just kind of, it'll be, I'll be fine. That's retired Navy Captain Mike McDaniel. He's speaking of his dad, Eugene Red McDaniel, now 91 years old, and also a former Navy captain. We're lucky to feature both of them on this docuseries. This episode will focus on Red's story, beginning three years after Commander Everett Alvarez's, which you heard in the last episode. These two heroes' journeys will be the through line of the entire series. I was not prepared to be a prisoner of war. I felt the possibility of being killed was fairly fairly high, but being a prisoner of war I felt was very small, and uh, I didn't really concern myself with that until I was floating down in the parachute. The day Red left for Vietnam was sort of like any other day in the life of a naval flyer. He was gone on a lot of various missions, and his family knew he was one of the best. 
there was rarely a thought their patriarch wouldn't come home. But Mike? Mike remembered feeling a bit differently the day his dad left in 1966. I had this little reel-to-reel tape player, and I recorded our conversation as we were walking down the hall as he was leaving the house. And I don't know why I did that. I mean, I guess I, I, I kind of felt it was, a, it was an important time. As we were walking out, and one thing I remember him saying as we were walking, he says, looked at me, he says, Michael, I want you to take care of the family while I'm gone. That was pretty heavy stuff. Then all of a sudden he's out of the picture, and I'll tell you, something like that really makes you grow up quick. Of course, Mike was right to feel differently that day. He wouldn't see his father again for seven years. Here's our historian and author, Alvin Townley, again, to remind us of what was generally going on in America in the 1960s. I think we forget that you know, the late 1960s were a terrible time for American unity. President Kennedy was assassinated. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Apparently official, official. President, President Kennedy, Kennedy died. died with gunshot wound in the brain. The President of the United States is dead. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Everyone is shocked that shock. you shame this happened in such a terrible thing can happen in this country. The first night of disorders put this capital city on edge. Tonight has been far worse. More than 100 fires were More than 350 persons have been treated for injuries. 700 people have been arrested. Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died. He was uh, 42 years old. There's only one word to describe the picture here, and that's grief and much of it. There were riots in Chicago in 1968, the Democratic National Convention. There's a lot of pushing. The man being pushed, watch it, they're going to knock that over. The man is a delegate. Body count of American men in Southeast Asia and Vietnam was getting higher quickly. 274 American soldiers were killed in action. 1,320 wounded. 12 were missing. No one really saw an end to the war. a little tired of this. You can say that again. People had really begun to protest the war in a lot of segments. We're living in the middle of a beast. One of the largest peace demonstrations in history. More than 50,000 burst on the Pentagon to protest the war. There are no limits to dissent. Vietnam is not our war. We must say no. Are we going to go? Hell no. We will go. I think it's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. It was just a really difficult time for America. Vietnam was really at the center of it. And we talk about America being divided today, and it is in many ways and polarized today. But again, a lot of that came back to the Vietnam War. Uh, Having met hundreds of you personally and thousands of you that I've spoken to, having heard your questions, Having looked into your faces, you have given me new hope about America. As a private citizen from 1963 to 1967, 
Former Vice President Richard Nixon did not take a break from politics. He traveled across the globe, meeting with world leaders and campaigning tirelessly across the country for Republican candidates in the 1964 and 1966 elections. That a change is going to come in November, or is it going to be more of the same? And I say to you, turn out. Let's get the biggest vote we've ever had. And America will get a new president in January. In 1968, he would announce that he was running for president again. This time, his platforms of restoring law and order and exiting our position in Vietnam honorably resonated with the American public because this time, unlike his bid eight years prior, he would win. Tonight, I again proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. Nixon positioned himself as the champion of those he called the silent majority. Those were Americans who did not join in the protests or counterculture or public discourse about the war. Nixon was to be their voice. Tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. Let us all understand that the question before us is not whether some Americans are for peace and some Americans are against peace. The question at issue is not whether Johnson's war becomes Nixon's war. The great question is, how can we win America's peace? What is the best way to end it? But when Nixon was sworn in in January of 1969, hundreds of American men were already being tortured, killed, and starved in North Vietnamese prison camps. Very soon, it would become one of Nixon's most important issues. But for those famished and desperate men, the American government probably could not have felt farther away. Still, they kept their honor and their sense of duty. After this, we'll go back into Captain Red McDaniel's life to find out why. I'm one of the few people who can say they'd rather be red than dead. Well, in another life, I was a redhead, and uh, some people ask me today uh, why they call me red. Well, it's it's kind of gray now, but I just never never changed. I am Eugene B. McDaniel, retired military Navy captain, 91 years old in September. I was the son of a sharecropper, oldest of eight children. Red was born September 1931 to Willard and Helen McDaniel poor tobacco sharecroppers in North Carolina. Sharecroppers only rent the land on which they farm, giving a part of each crop as rent to their landlord. Red was the eldest of eight children. I was an athlete, and my father gave me the option of plowing or playing, and guess what I did? And I was able to get a scholarship, play basketball and baseball for four years. Red attended Campbell Junior College in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina on a baseball scholarship. There, he met Dorothy Howard, the daughter of a Baptist minister. He would go on to marry her six years later. I started college in 1950, finished 1954. And when you finish college, you have no deferment. So you're eligible for the draft. Between Commander Everett Alvarez's capture in 1964 and the prisoner of war release in February 1973, the number of conscripted Americans in the battle against communist North Vietnamese would swell to more than 1,850,000. 
Well, in 1954, a ruling came out. If you signed for more than $5,000, you had to spend two years on the parent team roster. I was 22 years old, not ready for the major leagues, couldn't be farmed out because I'd sit on the bench for two years. And when I finished, I'd be 24, two years into my career. So I decided uh, that wasn't the way to go. I decided I'd join the Navy instead and become a flyer. It was an extension of athletics. Red noted that the competitiveness that came with being an elite naval aviator was already inside him from being an almost professional athlete. During the Korean War between the Junes of 1950 and 1953, more than 1.5 million American men were inducted into military service. Red would join two years later, during what would become a short-lived American peacetime. I joined the Navy on March 15, 1955. I went into flight training in Pensacola. Everett, who is six years Red's junior, would have just turned 18 five years prior to his own flight training in Pensacola in 1960. Neither man would have been likely to be able to point out Vietnam on a map in the late 50s or early 60s, and they certainly couldn't have imagined themselves as prisoners of war during this otherwise happy and fruitful part of American history. Flight training was 18 months. I was married in between basic flight training in advance to my wife, Dorothy, who is still with me. And we uh, came out of flight training in October 1956, got my wings, and I had a choice out of there. I went into the A6 community which was a new state-of-the-art aircraft, a jet versus a prop. It came out in 1964, built by Grumman Aircraft, all-weather attack bomber, two crewmen, a bombardier navigator who fed a computer that I flew by. Quite a difference. You come in a lot faster in a jet. You come on board ship 20 to 30 knots faster than in a prop. Went to Oceana, Virginia, where we stayed for about 25 years. My family stayed there while I went to Vietnam on Enterprise out of Alameda, California. Unlike Everett, who had been married just five months before shipping out, Red was a father, a family man. He had his wife, Dorothy, and his three children, including his eldest, Mike, who would go on to follow in Red's footsteps as a naval captain. When I became a Navy captain, he pinned his eagles on me at my uh, promotion ceremony. And he got up there and he says, okay, young man, you're now a captain, but I am still the captain. I said, yes, sir. Through the 50s and into the early 60s, America kept supporting the South Vietnamese regime which it saw as a bulwark, a line of defense against communism there in Southeast Asia. Like Everett and most Americans, Red had a simple understanding of what was a complex conflict. Well, I knew very little about Vietnam. I just knew that the the communism uh, was a a big fact of life there, and uh, it was the North versus the South. Uh, Vietnam bordered China, and... It was primarily an air war in the north. We had the draft, so we had a lot of good people, uh, a lot of people to volunteer, and had no problem meeting the quotas those days. A very 
strong, committed force, I think. And we uh, had an aversion to communism, which was a threat. And when asked to to go to war, we went proudly and to, to serve well. It was really a, a different type of war than we had fought before. There was not wasn't there weren't clear battle lines. There weren't clear enemies. There wasn't always a uniformed adversary. So a lot of times American troops had no way of knowing whether the the man they encountered on a road in a rice field or in a jungle was a communist, a guerrilla, you know, fighting for the Viet Cong, or if he was a friendly local villager. Our airstrikes on North Vietnam have been aimed at military targets and have been controlled with the greatest of care. In the mid to late 60s, under President Johnson, the American military would engage in what was called Operation Rolling Thunder. At my direction, United States aircraft have resumed action in North Vietnam. The goal was to destroy most of North Vietnam's oil storage facilities. They struck the lines of supply which support the continuing movement of men and arms against the people and the government of South Vietnam. When Red was flying combat missions for the operation in 1967, President Johnson was tired. He was struggling to advance America's position in the Vietnam War, and certainly getting our men out seemed like a faraway goal. He would announce he wouldn't seek re-election less than a year later. I'm really kind of broken up. I'm aching all over. I got a headache and my damn bones, uh, hips hurt me, and I just, uh, I'm just worn out. But for our naval aviators and the other men at war, quitting wasn't an option. All my missions were over North Vietnam, and I flew 80 missions successfully, had uh, probably another three or four to go, coming home after a year of combat, and uh, shot down on my 81st. You heard that right. He only had four missions to go. In fact, Red wrote a letter to Dorothy and his family saying he was going to dock in Japan and he'd be home. So after 900 hours in the air and 80 missions flown, Red's mind was understandably on his wife, his kids, and touching his feet down on still land. Well, American land. On the day that we were shot down, it was a major escalation point in the war. We lost seven aircraft, 10 crewmen. It was called Black Friday. It was one of the worst days of the war. It was a tragic day for us. We were flying in. We were going into Hanoi with 23 other aircraft, a formation of 24 aircraft, and the A-6 is not built for that element. We are single aircraft, so we can maneuver as we want. But this day, we, were, we had A-4s, F-4s, F-8s, all in the same flight. So we were restricted because we had to go slower than we normally did. We couldn't maneuver because we had to maintain flight integrity. That was not our element. 
we were probably about 30, 40 miles from the target, a place called Little Detroit, where they repaired a lot of the trucks. My flight never got to the target. I had a young man, Lieutenant James Kelly Patterson, flying with me as my navigator. We'd flown from the beginning 900 hours together as a team. The following is read reading from his book, Scars and Stripes, originally published in 1975, just two years after he touched back on American soil. The sound of Kelly's voice was always pleasant and reassuring to me. We had flown together for 18 months, almost 700 flight hours together. I knew his every move, he knew mine. He was 26 years old, round-faced, pleasant, and sensitive. Kelly would never let the bombs go if the target was at all in question due to a weak radar signal. For him, life was too precious just to let fly with destruction at everything in North Vietnam. I admired him for that virtue among many other things, and this made our comradeship something deep and vital. Kelly had a brother in Vietnam fighting for the infantry in the South. Whenever Kelly got leave, he would find his way to the name for his brother and go on patrol with him just so he could be with him. To me, that was the kind of love that doesn't come down the street every day. So I knew his every move, he knew mine and he was really the heart of the system. Our system, our A-6, we had equipment on the aircraft that would force the missile, surface-to-air missile, which we were hit by, to go in between two aircraft. In the big formation like that, we got too close together. We were dodging number four when we were hit by number five. Missile went between us as it should have, but it hit both aircraft. And on impact, the aircraft pitched down, began to accelerate, began to burn. My navigator, Lieutenant Patterson, said, let's eject. So we held a little conference, very brief, I might add. We were about 500 knots because we had no control of the aircraft. It forced us to eject. Decided to ride the aircraft about another minute to reach the mountain range, which we did. He ejects. If we go together, our seats collide. I must wait one second. And we're propelled about 200 feet above a near supersonic aircraft. And he landed on one side of the mountain, I landed on the far side. And uh, he's still missing from that mission. Was alive on the ground for three days and just disappeared even though he landed about a half a mile from where I was. Now, you will hear the actual audio of Red and Kelly's plane being hit, their communication with the other aircraft, and their decision to eject. This has never been played before for the general public. It's provided to us by Kelly's brother, Luck Patterson, who has kept it on tape and CD all these years. It's hard to make out, so we'll tell you what they're saying after it plays. Missile 
In the recording, you hear the airmen refer to each other as Raygun. That's each of their call signs. Raygun 1 is the flight leader. Raygun 3 is Red and Kelly. They're in the number 3 position in the formation. Raygun 1 says, Raygun 4, you say you're hit? Uh, Raygun 4, say you're hit. Yeah, I'm sorry, Raygun 3, he's burning. He responds, yeah, so is Raygun 3, he's burning. That's Red and Kelly. So Raygun 1 asks, How you doing, Raygun 3? Then we hear Kelly say, Okay, man, let's get out of here, huh? Okay, Red, let's get out of here, huh? Someone says, Raygun 3 has two good shoots. At uh, 9 o'clock low, uh, Raygun 3 has two good shoots. Showtime refers to another squadron, the F-4 Phantom Squadron. They are also watching. It's Showtime, so I have two parachutes at 9 o'clock. Oh, yeah, it's Showtime. I just saw the plane go in. Showtime 3 says, Raygun, are you going to stay with the shoots? Uh, Raygun, this is uh, Showtime 3. Are you going to stay with the shoots? And someone says, we got two beepers. And we got two beepers. AKA Red and Kelly parachuting through the sky. Red probably would have been glad to land in the water like Everett. Instead, he landed in a tree canopy 40 feet above the jungle floor. While trying to untangle himself from the parachute that just saved his life, he fell. 40 feet of gravity's force crushed two of his vertebra. I was having a hard time getting around. I knew I had a pretty severe injury to the back, but I didn't mention it to the aircraft because I wanted to be rescued, and I told them that I was okay. Uh, and they told me uh, the Jolly Greens would be there shortly. The Jolly Greens refers to the Air Force's combat rescue helicopters. Well, that was about 10 o'clock in the morning. I went through the day and then through the night, and the next morning they came in at first light, made contact, and I said, when are the Jolly Greens coming? They said, oh, about 45 minutes they will be here. So I took my parachute that I'd hidden overnight, spread it so they could see it. Seven hours later, the enemy came. I heard a, a couple bullets whiz by, and uh, I had a pistol myself, but I didn't bother to shoot because there were about 10 of them and one of me. Well, there were a couple of uh, militia and, and six or eight other people. Several of them were barefooted, uh, bloody feet, all types of dress, but they had been looking for me for the full 25 hours before they found me. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning when I got captured. 26 hours after shoot down. I could uh, walk with a lot of pain, but they uh, had to help me, and we they loaded me on a large truck with a 50-gallon uh, can of gasoline in it. I was in the back, and every time we ran over a bump, the gasoline would spill out on me. En route to Hanoi, which took me two days, they stopped me at two different army bases to rally the people, the Vietnamese people, with this captured U.S. pilot. The crowds were very angry because we had bombed their country that day, and the closer we got to Hanoi, the, the more angry they were. 
They gave each one of them a, a lick at us. They could hit us, they could throw a rock at us or whatever. And it was pretty frightening because they were angry. And we experienced that twice after being shot down. It was kind of a relief to go into the Hanoi Hilton because I had a lot of friends that were there before me and I felt that I would see them. At least there was more safety there than there was among the angry crowds. The Wallo prison was built in Hanoi by the French in the late 19th century, when Vietnam was still a part of French Indochina. The name commonly translates to fiery furnace or even hell's hole. It was intended to hold Vietnamese prisoners, particularly political prisoners vying for independence, who were often subject to torture and execution. It was located in the middle of a literal capital city near Hanoi's French Quarter instead of the middle of some barren field far from civilization like other prisons. Just outside their cell walls, prisoners would have been able to hear all the noise of a bustling metropolis, a taunting reminder of what they couldn't have. Because of its city-centered location, it was sarcastically nicknamed the Hanoi Hilton by the American POWs in reference to the well-known Hilton hotel chain. Here I was, uh, serious injuries in a new environment, and they throw you in a little solitary room right by yourself, and within a day, they start the torture. Within a two-week period of my shoot-down, there were 21 pilots shot down and taken to prison, taken to Hanoi, and only 11 of us came home. So the odds aren't very good. Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam is a docu-series from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Foundation. Produced by the team at Foundwave and respectfully created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. If you're interested in learning more about Vietnam POWs, you can visit the exhibition Captured at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Original music compositions, Foley effects, and mastering from Jonathan Rock. Produced and edited by Steph Weaver-Weinberg. Research, background, and history from Jason Schwartz. Executive production from Joe Lopez and the team at the Richard Nixon Foundation and Kaylee Mason from Perot Family Collections. Co-executive production, interviewing, and hosting from me, Tyler Russell McCusker. Find future episodes of this show and bonus content, including archival photos and audio at capturedpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our production, please consider leaving a review and clicking follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify.